Hey everybody, welcome to the 83rd episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, headed to my sister's wedding tomorrow. And from my sister's wedding, I head to BoucherCon in Toronto. And from Toronto, I head to Chicago to visit my little brother. And then from Chicago, I go to Oklahoma to visit my mother. And then from Oklahoma, I go home. I'm going to be gone all month. And uh, yeah, my shit is fucking booked up with freelance editing and writing gigs and podcasts and just a whole bunch of shit but I feel like this is a kind of test basically to see how much I can actually do with a busy schedule so anyway we'll get right to it I don't want to waste your time because this is a really good episode it's also a very long episode mostly because I'm trying to do uh, at least two hours um, from here on out oh hey but guess what if you're listening to this on October the 5th I started the JDO show exactly one year ago today. So thank you. This is the 83rd episode. We got about 83,000 downloads uh, total, which is pretty good, especially considering the first half, like the first 50 or so, uh, got below 500 uh, listens. Um, It's really kind of taking off, I guess. So that is awesome. Thanks so much for listening. If you want editing stuff done just hit me up i can book you for november no worries at all but uh anyway so today on the show i have uh, jordan harper he is a tv writer he is also the author of she rides shotgun and uh recently he sold how do you say it he sold the pilot to cbs for uh yeah for james elroy's la confidential so We talk a lot about adapting Elroy for television and crime writing, writing in general, uh, 90s crime films. It's basically, um, it's one of my favorite podcasts that I've done so far, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, When you're listening to this on the 5th, I'll be on on an airplane, so uh, wish me luck on an airplane. I I do, uh, I don't get nervous on airplanes, I just... I just don't like them. So anyway, um, yeah, enjoy this episode. It's uh, episode 83 of the JDO Show with Jordan Harper. Thanks. Hit the boop, boop. Wait, no, the, the, like, no, the one you like, get is like boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, you know? <laughs> it should just be a, uh, just like a dubstep bass drop, you know? Right. Wow, blah, 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 It's like, oh, hey, I'm getting a call. That's tight. Yeah, indeed. So how's it going, man? That's going pretty good. It looks like uh, the new version of Call Recorder just uh, just starts recording automatically. So, uh, hey, Jordan, thank you for being on the JDO show again. Uh, you bet. No problem, man. Uh, it's always fun. I say always. We did it once, but that was fun. That's true. It's entirely possible that this is going to be very unfun. Well, I'm going to do my best to, okay. to just... Let's talk about let's talk about the Holocaust. Yeah, no, that's a good stuff. You mean uh, the greatest lie ever told? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Let's 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 go ahead and get into that. I mean, six million—it's a perfectly round number, isn't that suspicious? I find it I find it hard to believe myself. But mm. you know, it's like I wasn't there. You know, I don't yeah. know. That's true. I wasn't there for a lot of things. So. <laughs> What if it's, uh, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Um, well, I mean, I guess there have been Holocaust deniers for as long as there's been a Holocaust, but it's interesting that there's that, that kind of resurgence in flat earth stuff. Yeah. 
Like, that's kind of mind, but like, I thought it was a joke at first. I thought like, there's no way, like, this is just something that we all know. But it seems like, I don't know, I feel like there are people who just like kind of get off on being the only one who really knows the truth. And, and then, so the truth has to be like something completely absurd, right? What you mean in order to be something that only they know, it mm-hmm. has to be so outland. I think there's something to that. I also think, and this, to, to just really go broad for a second here, I think if there's like a humanity in a hundred years and, and there's been any improvement, which those are big, big buys, but if that's true, yeah. they're going to look back on right now and say the internet was a huge mistake. Oh, totally. And, uh, and of the million different things, like, you know, um, you know, my pet thing of anxiety obviously the internet's terrible for that um it's terrible in a lot of ways but the way that we thought it was going to be this way that we could all have information but that's based on this really weird again like unproven assertion that we all agree on what information is and it turns out that it's just way easier for people to collect around any idea okay i don't know if this is entirely a joke but i was earlier today on twitter reading a thread where it was all men talking about how wiping their ass is gay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, some of them were clearly kind of, were joking, but some of them didn't seem like they were, and that the idea of, like, truly wiping your ass makes you gay, and therefore they don't. And, like, <laughs> I, I, and so... Like, the internet lets anybody who's ever had an idea throw it out there, and it maybe you, not you, but, like, maybe you never would have thought that, but you're scared about whatever gay things you have in your subconscious, and so mm-hmm. you you latch onto that, and now there's five guys who don't wipe their ass because they're gay. And, mm-hmm. it, and, and it just lets everybody collect in whatever little pods they want to, and... And that can't be a good thing. And so, yeah, the, the flat earth stuff, obviously, the, all the political stuff, and uh, and then guys not wiping their asses. So, like... Yeah, dude, it's one of those... Th- like, I'm really glad that you said that because that's exactly where my mind has been going, uh, that, you know, that everybody actually kind of doesn't deserve a voice. And at first... Um, so, but I don't think the alternative to that, obviously, is that, you know, we should have celebrities or you know people you know the the elites quote unquote who get to have all the say in everything because that's where the argument always goes right is that oh no that now there's just no gatekeepers but i mean i think it's like a balance basically and i'm hoping that the internet will eventually balance itself out but i'm not too hopeful for that just basically some kind of balance between you know not having obviously going back to like the three channels on tv type system but also just like not having the guys who think wiping your ass is gay having the same kind of ability the same mouthpiece right right to me i think that the thing that really changed everything from what the internet used to be it used to be everybody would have their own little garden everybody had their blog and but you had to go to it so you had to choose to go to where you went and then you know maybe it would lead you down a rabbit hole but like you always made the choice to go and now everything gets filtered into you so you don't go to these blogs facebook shows you them 
And if you go to this one, then it's going to show you that one. And, and you're going to follow people on Twitter who are like the people you already follow. And so everything, it's not nearly as free and open as it seems like it. it it's the same way that, well, not exactly the same, but sort of like how I feel like I have, we watch a, a narrower band of movies now than we used to because you used to go to the video store and you'd have the entire video store open and maybe you'd go to the horror section but you'd have the entire horror section open to you but now you go to iTunes or worse you go to Netflix and it only shows you stuff based on what you used to watch it's search function is is dick you know mm -hmm. and so we're really the our choices are way narrower than it than it feels like they ought to be that that future that we were promised of like everything available to you turns out no you're just still in these little weird you know cul-de-sacs and it's very hard to break out of them and i feel like it makes my music listening is, is narrower than it used to be my movie watch all of that stuff is narrower than it used to be and i mean that you know i have to take responsibility for that a little bit myself but like i feel like Everybody feels that way a little bit now. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know what's so interesting is that I didn't even know that Netflix uh, curated the feed until a month or two ago. And so I kept thinking, I was like, why is everybody always going on, like, Netflix is so awesome. It's showing me the same 15 movies over and yeah. over again. And it's because I'm a super picky moviegoer, and I guess the algorithms picked up on that, and they're just basically getting to the point where they're like... Do you just want to watch the same movie again? Because you could just do that, which is so creepy, though. Because I do, I do feel like um, the internet is slowly, you know, the 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 black iron prison bars are starting to show, right? You know, like they're starting right. to sort of fade in. I think you know with Netflix, what they do is they'll have ten different categories, but if you really look at them, it's kind of a jumbled mess of the same. 30 films yeah and, and so it'll be like edgy dramas and crime dramas and crime dramas with an edge and uh i mean again that's my netflix algorithm yeah, yeah. Uh, you know um and so yeah i do agree i feel like you know and we all get mad about the same five things every day yeah uh, collectively we all yesterday everybody in the fucking world was looking at whether or not football players kneeled, and not to dismiss their, uh, you know, their protest, which is awesome uh, and real. But like, why did why did literally everybody in America need to have that be what we talked about? And then the day before that, it was nuclear war. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then the nuclear war just disappears. Yeah, um, it's just whatever it is of the day, we're gonna get very angry about it or very um, upset, and then we're just gonna move on. To, it's very weird, and it again to reiterate it is not healthy for me and i don't think for anybody no i don't think so either and you know <clears throat> when i first moved to el paso i had this very much on my mind i was trying to articulate what exactly basically what we're talking about right now but i couldn't exactly put it into words and then i started reading the posts by do you follow uh, fuck theory by any chance Fuck Theory, no. So Fuck Theory is, I believe, a German dude living in New York. He does a lot of translations of Kant and stuff like that. But he, it's just really, really interesting Twitter feed with a lot of thoughts that kind of light me up in all the right ways. But he was talking about how we all sort of need to tend our own garden and sort of go inner, inward and fix ourselves and try to help, you know, 
very, very local people, you know? So when Mm -hmm. I first moved to El Paso, the first thing that I did was, uh, my friend Jose was really, um, instrumental in this sort of, uh, movement to keep this neighborhood called uh, Barrio Duranguito from being bulldozed and turned into a stadium. And, you know, it's like the oldest neighborhood in El Paso, and it's got Pancho Villa's house and a lot of cool shit. Wow. Um, and, of course, five wealthy people stand to make a ton of money by leveling it and putting up a soccer stadium, I think, or some bullshit. So uh-huh. anyway, so I just went to Jose, and I was like, hey, man, basically, I'm just a body. What can I do? So it was kind of funny because I found myself on, like, day three in El Paso, like, tearing down fences that contractors had put up and (laughs) yelling at riot cops. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I'm getting involved locally. And then I asked him to point me towards a, uh, this guy who's just, he's just a farmer. And every Sunday for two hours, you can go out there and just sort of help them do farm stuff. You see what I'm saying? So like, I kind of just, I kind of just wanted to get away from these because i think i think the problem might be i I don't really have any any real evidence for this but the problem might be uniquely american and that we love hyperbole and we love going big or going home and i think that people get tricked on twitter into thinking that they're going big by engaging in quote-unquote big conversations when really we gotta go small man oh i i completely agree and um you know, I've been. I can't fully commit to the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm, I'm a member, and I've been to a few meetings, but I'm not a socialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I think I'm, I'm moving past that into to full on anarchism. Mm-hmm. Um, but like uh, one thing they have, and, and I've signed up for it and then not followed through yet, but uh, is that they have a, what they call they don't do charity. They do what's called mutual aid, mm-hmm. and with the idea of it being yeah, just extremely local, extremely you know, a grassroots level. Like one thing a different DSA chapter did was uh, they offered, they set up a stand to fix people's brake lights for free mm-hmm. because brake lights out are the number one reason cops stop people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it's it's an attempt to try and help people, you know, do them a good solid thing and also have them not get fucked with by cops, mm. you know? And I was like, oh, that is something like I get you're helping people. It's It's materially benefiting them right away. Uh, yeah, because we we go to these. I mean, I you know I go to these protests and marches, and I'm not saying they're bad, but they're essentially meaningless in in some way. And and it seems like the only thing that really matters is actually doing something for somebody. And you're right, that has to be done on a local level. And I feel like people on the right figured that out a long time ago, which is why all our school boards are crazy. Mm, um, can you elaborate on that? Well, you know, it's this idea that Democrats, I think care about the presidency um and uh meanwhile the people on the right have been pushing on every level of government to get people elected so you know state legislatures are overwhelmingly republican um governorships even are overwhelmingly republican and and even like again school boards i you know you always hear about these these crazy people i mean you're in texas now i had a friend of, of mine in texas who said he sends his child to a private catholic school he is not catholic but he does that to avoid the religious indoctrination that happens in texas public schools is that is that, uh, that that's irony right yeah right i mean mm-hmm. that's absolute irony um and uh and this guy's not this guy's no uh radical you know he's he's, he's a he's a corporate lawyer but like 
Um, you know, and it's because they've taken over uh, the, these places. I feel like conservatives, again, talking very broadly, they move less. Mm-hmm. So these are communities oftentimes that they've been in their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, and so they're more woven into the fabric as opposed to, you know, I go to DSA meetings here in L.A. I mean, they are probably 99% white in a city that is uh, over 50% non-white. And, uh, and I bet if you did a poll, 90% of the people there were not born in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's not as natural. I just did have a friend who just got himself elected to the, uh, I live in Atwater Village, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles, and he just got himself elected to the Atwater Village Council. And I was like, oh, well, there you go. Like, that's probably actually the place where you can do the most good is literally your neighborhood council. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing, too, is that uh, when I said that it was kind of like a uniquely American problem, uh, we also really, really love sexy stuff here. We like the Aaron Sorkin yeah. speeches, right? Sure. And and a lot of local work is just devastatingly unsexy stuff. Like like going around, uh, that's the other thing I did with Jose was go door to door to collect signatures to make a petition. And then you're going to turn the, he turned the position, petition in and they, you know, they reject it. So then you go out, you make another petition, you go door to door, explain the issue. It's just incredibly boring i mean he's he's amazing too like my but like he's i'm gonna get him on the podcast actually because he's fucking amazing because he's so fired up about this kind of stuff but to me and i think most people it's just so boring you know but that's that's what you have to do like in a, even in a broader sense not even politically i think we need to get more boring yeah for sure for sure and uh no it is it's all elbow grease and work and, and it's it's not fun and there's nothing sexy about things that actually get done Here, here's a not a total pivot but a slight pivot have you read the new uh ryan holiday book that is his name right ryan holiday I, I in fact did i read i read the i listened to it uh on my trip to texas as a matter of fact the audiobook okay i'm i'm about i don't know i'm, I'm about a third of the way into it mm-hmm. uh and i think i like it more than i like most of his books mm-hmm. um I also I I almost only only, only listen to self help books as opposed to read them just because I I don't know it feels less dirty to me. <laughs> um, I will say a. Outside of the War of Art, no, even the War of Art, I have never read a self help book that did not feel padded, no matter mm-hmm. how short they are. Mm-hmm. You know they're always so overlarded with examples and repetition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, I, I do. I, I, the problem is you can't sell a pamphlet nowadays. People used to be pamphlet writers, you know? Yeah, for uh, sure. <laughs> but you can't sell a pamphlet anymore. So I don't begrudge a man uh, his need to make a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, I like what he's saying in this book because I think it speaks to something in me. And I was curious what you thought about it because I feel like we don't always, uh, our, I, I like the idea of, he's really saying like trying really hard to make something great. Yeah. Um, and, and paying the price for that, and, and it helped clarify what I, what I think my goals are. Uh, and it, it's that thing he said. What's the name of the book? It's Perennial Seller. Perennial Seller, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and how that is like a, a that is a broader, deeper goal than trying to just write a book or even to write a best-selling book. You know, most bestsellers disappear, and, and you never think about them again. And mm-hmm. and the idea of these these books that stick around. Or anything that sticks around, I don't know. I I, I think that's uh, that to me seems like a worthwhile goal to have. 
Uh, yeah. What did you think about it? Well, I thought, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the padding because I, I it was hard for me to get into it first because, uh, oddly, a lot of books tend to be padded towards the end, but Perennial Zeller, I feel like, is actually the opposite. So if you're enjoying it so far, it's just going to get better because um, as the book goes on and he starts to actually talk about uh, strategies and, you know... Um, starting up newsletters and how, how to market correctly and all this kind of stuff. It gets really, really tight and focused. And I feel like the first third, um, where he's sort of essentially just defining what he means, uh, that's when that's where it felt really padded to me. But that's not really uh, here nor there. I d you know, my whole opinion on the whole thing has, uh, I think, really changed even in, I think, the year or so since uh, we last did the podcast, which I think it might have actually been a year now, because time fucking flies. Um, God, is that true? I think so, dude. I think I started this thing in... No, I think we talked in October of last year. So, yeah. Uh, um, but no, I think, that wow. my, I think that my whole thing has changed, and I think that um, I think that I was really attracted to the idea of uh, pulp writers and people who could just have this kind of incredible discipline and the way that the thing okay so the thing is is that um it's also kind of like lifting weights right you know that like looking at a gym rat and somebody who's like in there all the time and they're just fucking ripped as hell and you're like wow that person is super disciplined but at a certain point like it stops kind of looking good you know and you just mm -hmm. you just kind of look bloated and strange um and then you start to realize that, you know, oh, I don't have to meditate all the time. I don't have to work out all the time. I don't have to write all the time. I just have to, to, to do it to the degree that I'm actually enjoying myself to a, to a certain extent because you're never going to 100% enjoy it. But that I'm also being careful and creating something uh, good. And I think that my output or lack thereof is evidence of the fact that even though I was really attracted to the idea of writing fast and writing... Uh, a lot it's just it doesn't fit with my with who i am uh -huh. basically so i I'm a, i actually am probably more in your camp now than i was before okay yeah that's what i was curious about because i did i did know that you did used to to kind of have this like just get it out there creation mode which is i i always admire those people i've, I've long since come to accept like if i write five novels in my life great that's mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um you know and uh because this new one's uh, taking as long as the last one and uh you know i found a draft the other day of she ride shotgun from 2013 you know mm -hmm. uh and and it was published in 2017 so uh you know that that's that's a that's a 5 year well, not exactly. That's a four-year um, cycle there, but that was just the first draft I found, you mm -hmm. know. Right. Um, so if I'm on a five-year cycle, it's not it's not going to make my my agent happy, but like it just might be that just might be what it is, and I don't I don't know what else to do because I've just learned very much that I am not somebody who just sits down and here's my new novel. It just doesn't. I mean, I have written enough words to have made a novel by now. Yeah. Um, but they're not the right words, and I can't. I can't let that go. There's, and, there's something, there, dude, there's something mysterious and mystical going on. And, you know, I'm sorry, but it's just, it's just the way it is. You know, some, yeah. some people, um, 
I, I do think that if you write fast, I will say broadly that the writing isn't as good. And that's not always true. It's not always true. Sometimes no. people write really fast and it's fantastic and it's epic and whatever. But kind of broadly speaking, it's normally not as good. But I, dude, I'm in the same camp as you. I've been, I have written the sequel to Lowdown probably well, five or six times, you know, yeah. just like in different ways, coming at it from different angles, different characters, completely different plot lines. And I'll get to a certain point and be like, well, it's wrong. But so, I mean, there's nothing I can do. That's just not the book. You yeah. Know? So <laughs> it's like, it's one of those things where, um, I, I, ju I just think that these things have to, it's kind of like, uh, when Lynch talks about like catching the fish and stuff like that. I yeah. feel like I I catch I catch fish that are in like the shallows kind of and they're kind of indicating that there are bigger and better ones out there but I just I have to wait you know I have to wait for that big one to come through and then but of course like when it hits then I'm on fire you know yeah but if it's not there it's not there and I know that there are a hundred million books out there that say don't wait for the muse, you know, you just have to keep writing. Um, but I have tried everything to make the muse come to me, and it doesn't work. I, well, I, yes, this is, I think that these are very important things that, that don't get talked about, because we are in such a grinder mentality when you look at, like, the public face of writing yes. right now. Yes. And it all, I think it all comes, and I, I love the man, I think it all comes from Stephen King. Mm -hmm. I think that his book on writing is so definitive in, in, in its statements about this stuff. And he is such a proponent of writing 3,000 words a day. And, and that book is so influential. And I feel like, you know, he actually says in, in the book at one point, if you think this is too hard, or if you can't do 3,000 words a day, maybe you're not a writer. And, you know, Orion Holiday says something similar in Perennial Sellers at one point. And I've read this a lot of times, people saying, if you don't do X, you don't do Y, well, maybe you're not a writer. But all I can say to that is, if I'm not a writer, what the fuck am I? Yeah. You know, I, it seems like I, I seem to be a writer. I seem to, you know, it seems to be what I am, but I'm not that. I am not somebody who works, does 3,000 words a day. And I'm kind of tired of feeling guilty about it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, uh... I feel guilty. I feel appropriately guilty about the amount of time I spend on Twitter because that is actively <laughs> bad for me. Um, Same. But you know what? If, if, if yeah, I uh, I rewatched Fresh yesterday. Do you know Fresh, the movie Fresh? I do not. Oh, it's such a good movie. I don't know why it's not. It's not a, considered a classic, but I think it's fantastic. It was made in the '90s. Uh, not too many famous people in it. Giancarlo Esposito plays a heroin dealer, and then Samuel L. Jackson, pre-fame, uh, plays this kid's dad. But it's a story of a 12-year-old kid in the inner city who is a very low-level drug runner, uh, but is marked by everybody around him as somebody who's going to be the man someday because he's, he's just, like, viciously intelligent. Mm -hmm. And his father is, like, one of those street chess hustlers. That's Samuel L. Jackson, mm -hmm. uh, who taught this kid to play chess. And... And then something happens. I'm not going to tell you because you really should watch this movie. And he decides he's going to use his intellect to get what he wants in the world. And he basically sets up. It's kind of a, a Yojimbo-like, Red Harvest-like situation 
uh, where he starts manipulating different sides of gangs and kind of plays a chess war. Uh, it's a great movie. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you should really watch it. It's it's really good. And, and Gian, I, I re, that's the movie I always. That's why I've always loved Giancarlo Esposito. So like pre Breaking Bad, like when he came on Breaking Bad, I was very excited because mm-hmm. I always feel like that's still. I feel like he's a guy who has not gotten his due, even though he was great on Breaking Bad. He should have his own show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. He's good and uh, anyway, too. my point is that's what I did yesterday. I watched Fresh. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Totally. And I think I uh, I've lost you. Oh, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, you're you're a little. Uh, there you go. Yeah, this new this new place that I'm in has a internet that kind of goes in and out. But did you have did you have more to say about Fresh? Uh, no, not really. Oh, okay, so I, yeah, so what I was going to say to that was the person to really talk to about this, and the person who kind of got my uh, head straight about the whole thing was actually Jed Ayers. Oh um, yeah. Yeah, because okay, so Jed wrote Peckerwood, and uh, Peckerwood, uh, I think Zero Saints might have gotten slightly ahead of it now but for a long time peckerwood was broken river's biggest seller right it was just this, uh-huh. this big monster book and i kept i knew he had a, a sequel in in his mind uh called shitbird and i was like oh dude we got to put that out and i didn't really nag him about it because you i don't really nag jed because he's just this very strange gentle man um uh-huh. and uh over to, I, I, I called him when I was had first moved to Texas and I was kind of restructuring how I was doing Broken River and talking to him about that and talking to him about books and stuff like that. And I was kind of telling him, you know, I just don't really, I don't really feel it that much. And he's like, yeah, man, me neither, but who cares? He's like, <laughs> he's just like, I don't, he's like, I don't, the way, he's, the way he sees it is that it's a whole bunch of work and if he's not going to have fun doing it then he's just not going to do it now he's an incredible writer so he's yeah. got he's got the ingrained talent and it's really hard to explain without sounding like you know like oh he's down in the dumps or feeling sorry for no it's it's literally none of those things it's just that it's just saying i'm not gonna buy the ticket because the ride doesn't seem like any fun right now you know and i yeah. that really clicked with me i was like and then funnily enough that actually got me writing again because i was like oh who cares that and watching twin peaks so i was like oh you can do whatever you want that's cool (laughs) yes that is cool and um yeah that that is you know there's two ways people can be inspired by david lynch and one is very bad Mm -hmm. and that is to go out and try and make something like twin peaks um which would be a terrible lesson to take but like the the real lesson to take is just yeah you can do what you want and you can demand what you want from the system. And the thing is, is he was able to make Twin Peaks because when Showtime pressured him on some of the things he wanted, he just walked away. Yeah. And said, okay, then I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And if you're willing to walk away, God, you have them by the balls, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, they have to want you too. You can't just show up out of nowhere and go, I'll walk away. <laughs> and get something from somebody but like you know it's just he it was so inspirational even the the things i didn't like about it you had to like about it because he just doesn't give a fuck and he doesn't give a fuck about the bullshit of prestige television which is something i absolutely like loathe at this point in my career um you know the, the the bad tropes of it and he just did exactly what he wanted to do and and that's so rare and, mm-hmm. and and you just 
more than anything else on TV, you really understood that you were seeing inside somebody's subconscious. I mean, that's really what he does, I think, better than anybody, is to deliver something that works both as art and entertainment at the same time, which is, is really the hat trick of life. And uh, um, I guess a hat trick, you need a third thing, but I don't understand sports. So Yeah, I don't I'm, either. I think that might be a hockey thing, right? Right? I don't know. It's a hat trick in sports <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Uh, point is, uh, yeah, it was. It was so thrilling to watch that. I mean, for me, the high point of the series. We're just going to talk about it. Is um, that episode eight? That mm-hmm. was like, you know, you, we went inside a nuclear bomb blast, and then it was like a Stan Brakhage film for like mm-hmm. three minutes, and you know, and it was there were terrifying things and funny things and. And it was beautiful. And at the same time, it was very clear what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it was actually a clearer explanation for the birth of, of Bob than I would have ever expected them to give. And, and it was also. And Judy. And Judy. Mm-hmm. And it was also beautiful in its simplicity of, like, oh, if this show is about trauma and how trauma can't be undone, then to choose the first nuclear bomb blast as the creation of this evil, talk about a trauma that can't be undone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it was just, it was just perfect, and and uh, and it was just, and dude's like seventy something, and he directed sixteen episodes of TV, mm-hmm. like, um, and edited them, and was credited as the sound designer, um, for every episode, and an assistant editor. Like, I don't know. And also to kind of go back to the thing we were talking about ten minutes ago, he that took him four and a half years. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean. And that's why when people ask for Twin Peaks season four, which honestly I kind of hope doesn't happen. Oh, me too. Um, he says, "Well, if I if I did that, it would take me. You know, Twin Peaks took me four and a half years." But w- one of the things that I liked uh, the most, and that kind of feeds into why I really don't want there to be a Twin Peaks season four, is when I was watching the show, I kind of felt for once like. Because I'm I'm the worst TV watcher of all time. I don't I don't see things coming. I'm gullible. Um, uh-huh. You know, every twist ending ever just gets me. I'm like, no fucking way. And sometimes <laughs> Rios will look at me and be like, that was literally telegraphed about eight times. And I was like, well, missed me. But uh, with Twin Peaks, I finally felt like I was smarter than everybody else because I would go look at these blogs and they would be like. What are what are all these scenes in the roadhouse? Like, what's what's going on with them? And I very haughtily from my from my tower, I was like, you, "Nothing. It's mm-hmm. it's not going to be anything." Or like, "What's going on with Audrey?" I'm like, "You're you're not gonna you're not gonna get an answer to that." You know what I mean? So it's just like all these. And there were some pretty badass theories out there, but I'm like, "You're not gonna. It's who's Billy? You're n- never gonna find never gonna out. know. Never gonna find out." And um. I don't know. Did you um, did you read the one uh, ending explanation where they talked about how Odessa was this thing called the cage to to, to lure Judy in? I did. I thought that uh, was pretty solid. Yeah, but like, who knows? I don't know. It, yeah. <laughs> they always require things not put on the screen to to make any of those things make sense. It, there was. I don't know. I the idea that Judy is trapped and that was a happy ending, I find I find difficult to understand mm-hmm. because I just it didn't feel that way. And I guess you know you could say it was, it was 
that what you go off of. But if you don't go off feel on a David Lynch movie, what do you go off of? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, clearly they are someplace else, but like, how do they know that Judy is trapped there? I, I don't know. I think anything that tries to make everything fit into a neat package is exactly like you're saying. It's not going to, it's not going to make sense. I was that the same one that, that brought in the idea of Jack Parsons. Uh, no, that the Jack Parsons one was by far, I tried to be nice to it at first, but it was the, it was the one that said that you needed to play 17 and 18 at the same time. Right. Which uh, was clearly bullshit. That is complete bull. You know, it could be, I, I do think that Lynch does like uh, symmetry, right. And, and mm-hmm. where you, you know, you can see that similar things happen in episode two that happen in episode 17, you know, and then all the way down and like almost like a reverse symmetrina type thing. Like I get all sure. that, but that has absolutely nothing to do with that's all meta shit. You know, that's all technique. Um, that doesn't sure. have anything to do with the, with the thing, but yeah, no, I, um, I like, I, I kind of liked the Jack Parsons thing, but then it's like, it's because, you know, the real Diane has a red wig and that's connected because this lady who Jack Parsons fucked around with had a, red wig and i was like uh, okay right am i getting that yeah. right that is right no it's it's marjorie i can't remember her last name who's a she's a very interesting woman in, in her in her own right i i have a biography for about her somewhere that i have not read uh yeah but i don't know i again you can tease these things out and and you know mark frost apparently he's got a new book coming out and he wrote a book before this that is full of like trivia that you can apply to this but then you go well and i'm serious about this did David Lynch read that book? No. Oh, no. no. I think I can't remember where I read it, but I think that one of the main points of contention uh, between Mark Frost and David Lynch is that Frost has, because if you've ever read his books, um, I'm not, I'm not, not actually a big fan of his work, um, but I am given the impression, and I know I read this somewhere, that he has a very clear outline for what is happening. Mm-hmm. And essentially Lynch comes in and just says, no, fuck all that. And just like takes the basic skeleton of it and does his, you know, transcendental meditation and says, well, you know, actually in this scene, it should be a guy sweeping peanuts for three and a half minutes, you know? So mm-hmm. I do think that there's like, there's this kind of tension between the two of them where I think Frost wants to be like, no, this is what happens. This is what happens. And, and Lynch is like uh, I don't know. I, I've caught the fish. They're, those are the fish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think there's something really fruitful about that, um, as opposed to like, look, I've seen Inland Empire a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, not my favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Um, not my favorite movie of his by by a long shot. And I've also seen all of the DVD extras for Inland Empire because I reviewed it as a DVD. I used to be a DVD columnist, and I really honestly uh, can barely tell the difference between the DVD extras and the movie that made it onto the screen. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think that sometimes I don't mind Lynch being reined in a little bit by some something. Um, even if it's just the cost of film, which I think is the difference between Inland Empire and the rest of his movies is he literally didn't even have to care about how much he shot. So he would just call Laura Dern up and say, hey, like you said, caught a fish. Let's go shoot a scene. And it didn't mean anything. It didn't cost anything. And I'm not sure. I I really do am starting to feel like barriers do. I mean, this is a cliche, but barriers do make 
for better art sometimes. And, and I don't mind him having to climb a few obstacles. And I don't want that obstacle to be like obtuse network notes or something like that. But like, um, you know, I, I do think that I, I know I will watch episodes of this season of Twin Peaks before I will watch uh, Inland Empire again. Yeah, it's kind of like why uh, At the Drive-In is such a superior band to the Mars Volta. Well, at least that's my opinion. Is because uh, when you have the Mars Volta, you have uh, like Cedric and Omar kind of just following their creative genius wherever it takes them. And sometimes it makes albums that are a complete mess. Um, and of course, the new At the Drive-In album wasn't that good. But, you know, Relationship of Command is one of the best albums of all time. Which is something really that I, I, I just never thought that the Mars Volta got there because they had Jim Ward, you know, and Jim Ward was just, you know, if you listen to Spartus, nothing really exciting is happening in that band. But somehow when those two forces like mixed together, it kind of balanced each other out, I feel. I, um, you know, at this stage in my life, I'm kind of over the Beatles in a lot of ways, just because, you know, for my entire life, they've been so heralded and all that. But I did at one point, and I was not, not ever a big enough Beatles fan to justify this, but I read it anyway, and I can't remember the name of the book. There's a book that is a history of the Beatles that is told as a chronological dissection of every single recording session that they did. So instead of chapters, what it is, is it's literally a list of every song they recorded ever in the order they recorded them with, like, you know, paragraphs uh, you know, some some wow. entries are longer than others. Um, and it's really fascinating. And it's really fascinating because it is as complete a record of, of a creative relationship as you will ever read because, you know, you know, these guys, obviously they did all that work they did in Germany before they started recording. But like these guys at the end were just, a, they were a studio band. And it really was, you saw how, how important you know John and Paul were to each other, and and how many ideas that they threw into each other's songs, and how you know, and obviously you know, like John Lennon wrote some really great songs afterwards, and I guess Paul McCartney did too. But like, I don't know, it was, it's a really fascinating read, and and again, I don't think you have to be an absolute Beatles maniac to to enjoy reading about it because it's you just have to be interested in the creative process because it's, it's just a really in-depth look at it. I would really recommend it if I could remember the title of it. Oh, I'm sure that that's just a Google search away. So I'll see if I can dig that up because that, really, that is really interesting. And it makes me think about it in terms of writing. You know, I, I co-wrote a book with Cody Goodfellow. Sure. And that was kind of, you know, I'm not, I think we might be maybe a little bit too similar for that to really be, a great partnership, you know, because, yeah, because I, it, for pretty much that whole book, it was what was so fun about it was that we would bounce an idea off the other, and pretty much ninety percent of the time would be like, "That's fucking awesome!" Like, put that in, you know uh -huh. what I mean? But it's not really there. There was no reining in, you know. And I think if when people read that book, they can get the sense that it's really just, you know throwing every cool thing at the wall that we could you know and we're still going to write books together because we have more of those books planned basically but um i think that it would be interesting to find somebody who was very very plot driven like yeah. somebody like uh like i would team up with somebody like a rob hart or something like that you know uh -huh. who writes those you know very very straightforward 
kind of the Ash, Ash McKenna books. They're fun, but you know, they're not like weird or anything like that. And just see like what, what, what could be done with that. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. would be kind of cool. Well, I mean, that is the Twin Peaks model, you know? And, uh, and I do think there's something really, do you know that, um, Michael Mann, and I can't remember the guy's name. I'm terrible with names. Uh, hired basically a cool coordinator from Miami Vice. I did not know that. That, in fact, basically, Michael Mann and the movie and the TV show Miami Vice created the idea of Miami as something totally different than it was. So that a lot of the like the paint schemes and and the the color combinations that they wore. He was some Italian designer, hmm. and. They, they imposed this vision on Miami that then became what people thought of Miami. And I, I imagine Miami actually became, at least in certain circles, and rich people and all that. You know, right. you know the, the peach-colored uh, blazers with the sleeves rolled up and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all the neon and all those things that make, I, you know, I, I love Miami Vice. And uh, I feel like I would love, like, I, I am actually going out to pitch a new TV show this week. And... Uh, if I get this particular one made, I absolutely want to do that. I want it because I'm not cool. Like I, I, it's particularly from like a design sense or a fashion sense. Like mm-hmm. I have none of that in me, mm-hmm. and I would love to team up with somebody because I feel like nobody tries to be cool anymore. The last thing I can remember that felt cool is the first thirty minutes of Drive. Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty true. Yeah, I, I feel like. Uh, uh, irony and and shit like that has really kind of overtaken any because you know i mean as soon as you do something cool there's eight people like oh look at mr cool over here yeah just being cool and you know if you made that tv show that would be like oh wow look at uh look at harper over here mr cool guy huh mr cool guy making a cool show it's not just irony absolutely and, and that but there's also a such a move right now towards grit as in making Mm. things unremarkable and making them as plain as possible even movies i've really liked recently but like the crime genre in general is so like infected with it right now did you see uh good time i have not seen good time yet with the exception of the soundtrack which is awesome it's what is it i never know how to say this guy's name oh no tricks point never yeah yeah Uh, one oh yeah one oh tricks point never Mm -hmm. one oh tricks point never there you go Mm -hmm. um that soundtrack's amazing, but um, but the rest of it is, and, and does not fit the movie in a very essential way of like it's cool, um, and it's kind of otherworldly. But everything else is so on the ground. They're such petty criminals. They are. It's so small potatoes, and I I, I definitely have jealousy for uh, Trevor Sheridan's career. Mm-hmm. Um, have to even Google this. Uh, <laughs> Is that his name? Uh, oh, wait, the guy, the guy who made the movie, or yeah, yeah the guy who made no, I'm, it's a different guy. It's not Trevor Sheridan, Taylor so, Sheridan, uh, I, who wrote, um, he wrote, um, God, I'm totally blanking. He wrote Hell or High Water and Sicario and Wind River. Oh, oh okay, okay. Well, actually, that's funny you know, because I, I, I've seen two of those, and I actually didn't like Hell or High Water or uh, Sicario. So, I there were things about both of them I liked. I, I again, like I thought the first thirty minutes of Sicario were awesome, mm-hmm. and then I did feel like it, it went off the rails. And but everything he does is it, it, it's that it's that like extremely 
plain spoken, extremely, yeah, you know, the idea that like nobody wants to think crime can be fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I got into this game back in like, I mean, not when I was start creating, but you know, my roots are all '90s crime films and gangster rap. Yeah. And fuck, crime used to be fun. It used to be okay to like enjoy all this stuff and and to. You know, people now, I think, don't understand, and I don't think Oliver Stone completely understood it either, uh, that, like, Scarface is not a morality tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want it to be, but here's my thing about, like, a lot of movies. If 90% of what the movie is is this is awesome and then the last 10 minutes is, is bad, <laughs> guess what? You think crime is awesome. And yeah. you're particularly saying it to the kind of people who are, you know, people go, oh, those dummies who wear you know, uh, Scarface t-shirts, don't they get that it's a bad story? It's like, maybe it's a bad story to you in your Hollywood mansion, mm-hmm. but like to somebody on the streets, like they they want to aspire to that. And, you know, there's that great line in the wire where somebody says like to Marlowe, it's like, well, you're going to grab the crown, but then somebody else is going to take it from you. And he said, yeah, but I'm going to warn it. Mm-hmm. You know, because what's the alternative? You go get a job at McDonald's, like yeah. Well, I mean, it's and it's like with Scarface in particular. It's like oh, it ends, you know. However, whatever. It's like so. You, wait, you're saying I could make a ton of money, and then when people come for me, I could blow them away with uh, what? What are those things like? What the? He's got like the, an M16, right? With like a right. rocket launcher on or a grenade oh, launcher. Right. Or yeah, yeah, grenade launcher. It's like on. so. I basically take out almost all of them. You know, it's like yeah, sure. I mean, that seems like a pretty fucking glorious way. But dude, no, I totally agree. Like, just to kind of backtrack a little bit, I watched the Safdie brothers' first movie, Heaven, or not first, but Heaven Knows What. It was on Netflix, and uh, okay. it was kind of about a, a junkie girl uh, in New York City, and they basically found a real junkie. Um, who kind of had written down her experiences, and then they just kind of recreated it. the The guy in the the guy in the uh, um, in the movie was uh, I can't remember his name. He's that he's the weirdo brother in Get Out. He was also in Twin Peaks. He was Amanda Seyfried's like uh, abusive boyfriend. Oh, yeah, I don't know that guy's name, but he's excellent. Yeah, he's great. So he was he was the weird goth boyfriend in uh, in this movie. But like, I got almost to the end of it, and. I felt nauseous, you know, like I didn't, yeah. I actually didn't watch the last 15 minutes of it just because, not because anything in particular bad was going to happen, but like these people's lives, oh, it had Necro in it also, Necro had Oh, so does this one. So oh, this okay, one. right on. Yeah. Um, but, um, but basically I was just like, this makes me feel sick because I just feel bad for these people, you know, and it's just, I, I don't really get the point, but I feel like this whole grit thing started a while back and it really kind of... It, it, it's infected books too you know i've kind of railed against this for probably five years now which is just that like i find that grit has gotten so it's gotten so quote-unquote gritty and realistic that it's come out the other side and might be more ridiculous than tarantino type you know weirdo shit you know guy Ritchie yeah. type stuff i feel like um i agree and i i don't read I, I, here's a I don't read a whole lot of modern crime fiction mm-hmm. um but like it's just not because uh, why why do I want to spend time in these worlds and you know I think again like oftentimes the success of certain things like well no country for old men is actually not a good example because there's a very unreal element to no country for old men mm-hmm. um you know there are things like winter's bone that I love but like again Sometimes you can just have a one-off thing that you love without thinking, well, this is where everything should go. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and, and and this is the direction that everything should should go. And I just I feel like like plotting is is very out right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like plot. I like stories. I like stories with beginnings and middles and ends. I like arcs. It, you know, I don't. I think that novelty sometimes gets so. I mean, this is a different argument. Novelty gets so lauded that it's hard to understand that like some things work because they work. Mm. And 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 that's okay too. I don't know. This, it, I, that's you know that's a that's a weird uh, non sequitur in what we're actually discussing because it's a whole different argument that I have about television right now. Um, I, I like I like monologues too and soliloquy. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I and I like people talking, which seems to there seems to be uh, there was. I feel like maybe five, six, seven years ago, people started noticing that people talk too much. And, you know, it can get corny. Like, I always think that, you know, The Wire is such a great show, but I cringe when uh, Deed gives that chess speech, you know? Yeah, where he's, where he's yeah. Like, and then, and then the, David Simon, I'm actually, like, I'm not a big David Simon fan, um, but The Wire was fantastic. Um, but, like, he writes those characters saying, like, oh, man, so, you know, the queen be like, and I'm just, like, it's just cring- it's cringy, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of people... Uh, wrote really really cringy dialogue so it comes out the other end as this kind of like very self-knowing uh where people will start to talk and then somebody will be like you know what's the point like let's just go do the bank robbery or what you know what i mean <laughs> and it's like no come on i wanted to hear i wanted to hear some fun talking about stuff <laughs> see that's where in his prime david mamet is is so good and he you know he's not even the credited writer on the script but for me ronan it's like the, the best one of the best marriages of that kind of thing where uh, the plot is just, yes, we're, we're getting the case and you don't know what's in the case, but you just want the case. But the dialogue is fantastic. And, oh, yeah. and it's pulp. And, and that, you know, I feel like we collectively praise Tarantino for the wrong thing. When mm-hmm. you go back and you watch his movies, to me, what really shines in them, you look at um Reservoir Dogs, which I still think is probably his best movie. And, you know, there's that thing at the beginning that he does with Like a Virgin that's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie is fantastic because it's a weird father-son love story and a bank robbery that opens. It's the next scene where you've gone from the diner to, you know, Tim Roth bleeding to death in the back of a car. And it's actually a really tight prime film, except for that scene and then the scene, which is the other part, I, which I frankly would cut from the film, of Tim Roth learning to tell the story about the weed deal that just goes on forever. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, which you almost forget is there, and it really comes at the wrong time pacing-wise in the film. But the, other than that, it's really a pretty tight film. And the, and most of the conversations are like between Steve Buscemi and Harvey Keitel about like who the rat is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really good conversations, and, and they're full of good dialogue, but they're not these weird tangents that is what we ended up praising him for are things about Le Big Mac. Mm-hmm. And it's why I, I haven't seen Hateful Eight. Um, oh, it's real bad. It's real bad. I assume it was because um, I, again, I just I think he used to know how to really tell a story. Uh, and then, like, I love Kill Bill, but Kill Bill, I do not love for whatever he says about Superman at the end of the film. You know, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and so that's where I think you know people got to where they were just imitating that. Um, and the other thing is it's really hard to do really great elevated dialogue that doesn't come off like you're saying cringy. But like 
again, our, you know, David Milch was over there at Deadwood fucking killing the living shit out of it, oh, writing some of the best dialogue that's ever been written, and nobody imitates that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really hard to do. Well, wasn't, but he, like, wasn't he writing a lot of uh, the stuff in, like, iambic pentameter, especially, like, Swear Engine's stuff? Like, he was actually, he was using a meter in that, right? I've heard that said. I've never sat down and, like, you know, did scansion on the stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But, like, I also understand he wrote a lot of that stuff literally standing on set. Like, that he he comes up with this stuff off the top of his head. Ugh. And, yeah, it's disgusting. That's gross, man. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that one of the things that uh, film probably I always think about this Grant Morrison quote right and he was talking about he wrote Batman for a long time okay and he kind of yeah. brought like pulp fun back to Batman very colorful almost like the Schumacher type stuff that's what the art reminded me of and you know just these crazy weird plots and you know Batman going through time and Batman with Bat Imp, which is a little thing that flies around his head and speaks Uh in a weird, you know. So anyway, so he brought all this weird stuff back and he has this quote where people, um, he's like, people will come up to me and say, you know, well, how does the Batmobile get out of the Batcave? And what, and and he's like, it doesn't get out of the Batcave. It just is out of the Batcave. You know, it's like, Uh what, what, um, how, how did the physics of Superman, it's like, there are no physics of Superman. It's, it's fiction. It's fake. You know, like these characters yeah. are not real. And he was kind of talking about, you know, how the, you know, the popularity of the Nolan movies and stuff like that. And how that seemed to be kind of taking over comics. It sort of bled into comics. And comics went through their gritty phase. Like, thank God, I think they're mostly out of that gritty phase. But yeah, at a certain point, it's fiction. It's not real. And it doesn't, ha- we have. Uh, I've lost you, sir. Oh, what, what, what uh, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Yeah, now I can. Okay. Sorry about that. No, I can't. It's, it's, hello? Hello? Nope. Hello? Nope. Hello? <laughs> this will be fun for the podcast listeners. It's like, <laughs> now I can. Oh, am I, nope. am, I, am I here now? God damn it. Okay, okay. All right. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. So anyway, so um, he was talking mostly just about how, you know, we already live in a world that is pretty fucking gritty. And it's sort of like these stories don't have to be that right they can be fun in a way and kind of amoral everything doesn't have to be a morality tale either well no for sure and i do think that you know you also have to look at at the broader picture of you know whatever was true in the real world i think the perception of the eight years of obama were that things were really good and when things are really good people kind of want to see the gritty side of nature but like i don't know you you, nowadays you open up your, your computer and find out the world sucks and uh, do you really need to go watch a TV show? Like, I feel like The Handmaid's Tale uh, is really well done, and, but it was created when they all thought Hillary was going to win. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be a time where it would be somewhat enjoyable to, to peek in on, on a fascist future that isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And now, and you know, I'm sure, like, I'm a man, so my perspective on this is, like, who gives a shit? But, like, um, it, it just seems like maybe now is not actually the time to do a and not that they should quit making it but like do you really want to watch this weird dystopian future when i can open up my computer and turn on twitter and see this weird dystopian future that we live in now um i think people would rather probably have a little fun and i really think that art there's this thing going on in hollywood right now 
And the thing that is going on is there's this real desperate idea that we have to start making things for the middle of the country. And how that is expressing itself is in this idea that we need to make shows about people from the middle of the country living there, people in the middle of the country lives, and that's how you get people to to invest. And I, as somebody from the middle of the country, I can say no. People want to watch fucking Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Like people from the middle of the country, I you know, I people in Hollywood are so narcissistic, which is why there are so many shows set in my neighborhood, Atwater Village or Los Feliz or um, Silver Lake. It's because we're all narcissists here, so we actually do want to watch TV shows about people who live right around us living our lives. Um, I don't personally, but everybody else around here does. Uh-huh. Um, and so they think that, therefore, everybody in the middle of the country must be the same kind of narcissist and wants to watch some show about you know, a housing manager in an apartment complex in Corpus Christi, Texas, or something like that. And it's like, no, they don't. They want to watch fucking adventures, just like everybody has for the last eight thousand years or whatever um you know and that's what real people want is to be entertained and and not that you can't be profound or you can't but you have to you have to offer them something you have to be worth watching and i think the way you do that is to be entertaining and i feel like we're in an age where comedy isn't funny Mm -hmm. and dramas are just about character which to me is just as empty as something that's just about plot like you have to unify all these things and it's really fucking hard uh but that's that's the gig, and I feel like nobody wants to do that. So they just have this very base level thing of, well, we'll get people from Middle America won over by doing a show with a the dad's a NASCAR driver and or not even NASCAR driver, NASCAR fan, and uh, and that's how we that's how we talk to Middle America. It's like ah, that that's con- that's condescending, and people want to have fun. I think the, the the word condescending is exactly how I felt when I I keep seeing these ads for some fucking reason on my Twitter feed. For a TV show called American Housewife. And, okay. And um, oh, so you're not familiar? Okay. No, well, I'm not. Well, let well let me explain. Uh, it's about a housewife in uh, the middle of America, who's um, got a husband. Oh, it's that, it's that woman from Eastbound and Down, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. I have seen ads for that. Yeah, and I mean, and she's she's a great actress. You know, she's got great comedic timing, and but you know, the gag the gags are like you know. She pretends to be pregnant so that she can get cut in line at the grocery store, you know, and it's just mm. this wah, 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 like, and you know, I'm sure there are people out there who, on the other hand, to what you're saying, there are people out there who do like to go, look, it's me, um, or that's so me, um, but it does seem to be, I don't know, it just seems a little disrespectful and gross, you know, like this is what we think you are, <laughs> you know what I mean? As opposed to like, um, you know, when Roseanne did it and it felt absolutely fucking real, real. Mm-hmm. And and it, that show was crazy good. Yeah. Um, but again, like, I think a lot of times people want to take weird lessons from uh, from one. Roseanne was brilliant primarily uh, because Roseanne did it. And Roseanne was brilliant mm-hmm. back then. I mean, I think she's gone fully crazy. But like there was something to her that was essential and true that needed to be on the screen and that's why that show was amazing. And again, you know, we talked about not to totally go away from this, but like I think that's the lesson that people don't learn from Twin Peaks is, you know, out here you'll hear people say, "Oh, it's the new Twin Peaks." And what they mean by that is it's a quirky mystery set in a small town. Um 
and not, you know, a, a work of genius by a surrealist, you know, uh, right, right, right. uh, to use genius twice there, but, um, well, he, he deserves it. He can get, he can get two geniuses. He get two geniuses. Um, <laughs> but you know, because that's the terrifying lesson is that talent is actually what, what matters. Out mm. and, you know, they really can't believe that they have to believe it's the property, which is why there are so many remakes. Everybody wants to know why there are so many remakes. And the answer is, is that writers are all in Hollywood are all sharecroppers mm. and intellectual po- property is the land. Um, and yeah, no, I think about this a lot is that intellectual property is always valuable. It's always worth holding on to. And in, in books, you own your, you own your land. You know, um, I own my novels. I don't own any pilot I write because you, we made a deal in Hollywood to literally give up our copyright. Um, and we get paid back in residuals, which is like pocket change compared to, I read, and these people are my new bosses, so I tried carefully, but I, I, I read that CBS makes $20 million a year to this day off I Love Lucy. Holy shit. Right? That's crazy. Um, and you just have to ask, why is that? Mm-hmm. Um, why is Mickey Mouse never going into public domain? You know, they keep changing public domain laws every year uh, and extending them so that because we're at a point now where basically everything that happened before Steamboat Willie, which is Mickey Mouse's first appearance, everything before that is in public domain. Everything that happened after Steamboat Willie is never going to enter public domain, ever. Like, ever. Mm Mm-hmm. And as long as there are corporations and as long as they exist, Steamboat Willie is never going to public domain because that means Walt Disney loses Mickey Mouse. Um, and a couple years after that, DC would lose Batman and Superman. And they will never let that happen because this is the land. Mm-hmm. And they understand that, that land is always valuable. So they own all this land and they're going to make us work it. So, and I, Hey, look, I, you know what I'm doing. I'm doing LA confidential for CBS and I'm mm-hmm. very excited to do it because it's an amazing property. Uh, and it's legalized plagiarism, dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, like, cool. it's super cool. It's like, I'm literally last night I was, you know, I'm getting ready to write the pilot and I'm reading the book and I'm going, Oh, I can use this line. <laughs> like I literally, can use like, that's so it's, fucking cool, man. Right. And you just go, I can literally just, what I wonder how I'd do this conversation. It's like just type in what's in the book and then you know tweak it. Mm-hmm. Like, and it feels so weird and wrong because it's so. Anyway, so my point is like I'm I'm a part of this system too, and I'm very glad to be because I'm very excited about like confidential. But there is a reason why they want to do properties, and it's because they own the land. And uh, do you think there's too many books and TV shows and shit now? Like, is there just too much? I had this idea, uh, this realization the other day, and. and it's 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 hard one to deal with it as somebody who wants to write books. But if they stopped making books today, mm-hmm. if they stopped making movies today, and if they stopped making music today, no one would ever run out. Yeah, that's true. The only exception, and I think this is important, is people of color um, would run out. Uh, you know, I think there's still true. an argument to made that, like, you know, people of color still have a lot of stories to be told that haven't been told. But uh, as a white dude in America, shut off the tap right now. I'm good. 
And I don't mean just rewatching my favorite movies. I mean, I could start watching old movies and watch a different movie every day the rest of my life and be good. And, and probably somehow, if you played it right, only watch pretty good movies. Yeah, and you, and you wouldn't even be making a dent in the pretty good movie pool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it gets increasingly harder to justify. And I do think there's a generation coming up behind us that is is losing the idea of newness being impressive. And I keep hearing about people's like 12-year-old kids who are on Netflix just watching Friends. Mm-hmm. They don't need to watch the new show because Netflix is, as, you know, Friends is as new to them and as available and positioned equal to new shows on Netflix. Um, and, uh, and so, like, they don't care if something's new or not. And, and they have such a fucking treasure trove to dig into and, and it it's going to be harder to justify creating things uh, you know and i've also been seeing uh the people the folks I, I almost said kids which would have been very offensive but i kind of have been paying attention to new uh web zines and you know new stuff coming up you know with like the kids basically you know yeah um and there's also seems to be a real lack of uh giving a shit about uh authorial credit so, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are these magazines where people just go by pseudonyms and, you know, there's entire websites devoted to, you know, copy pasta, basically, yeah. you know, where you make a, and then, you know, obviously creepy pasta is the, the scary offshoot of that. But the whole point is to not really, is to have no authorial, you know, stamp on it, which is really, really weird because I feel like that kind of authorial stamp gets stronger and stronger as the generations kind of get older and older and when you kind of have like sort of boomer writers it's very very important to them and then it seems to get less important with exceptions obviously i have to always you know put in little caveats that here and there um but it seems like yeah the younger and younger people get the less they give a shit about being a writer which is something that's always annoyed me you know and i don't know maybe you have some insight into this but i don't know why it's always annoyed me when people hyper identify with the word writer i don't know why that gets under my skin i don't know maybe it's hitting close to home i can't really make sense of that but that's always you know like when it's in their twitter bio like just the word writer and i'm like "Uh, yes right okay yeah because i think that people just I don't know. I just think that some people aren't that good. And I wish that writing was more like sports where I love basketball, but I, you know, I will never play in the NBA ever. You know what I I mean? I I wish there was something, but it's, you know, it's subjective. So it's really, really difficult. But then I start to think, is it really subjective, you know, or is it just, has it split off into little clicks and certain people buy their clicks, little books so that the click will buy their book. And does anybody even like reading anymore? I get the, I'm sorry that I'm rambling. I don't know where all this energy came from, but I get the impression that people don't even fucking like reading anymore. And the reason why I get that impression is because if people really liked reading, they'd be writing about the books that they have read the same way they write about the movies they watch or the albums they listen to the same way that they share pictures that they think are funny. People would at least in the form of a 140 character tweet or a Facebook post or something, they would talk about in depth with some kind of depth the books that they were reading but you just you get a picture of a book and you get like oh man this book is slamming uh which i'm trying to bring <laughs> slamming back by the way i think okay. that i think Do that that was used in um that uh, vanilla ice movie what was that one called i 
can't oh, uh, Cool as Ice? Yeah, I think they used Slammin' in that movie, so I'm trying to bring it back. But, you know, a picture and a one-line, oh, you know, Jordan Harper's a fucking badass. You should get this book. Okay, but what did you, you know, but then you'll look at, like, a yeah. movie thing. They'll be like, oh, this, uh, you know, this movie that such and such wrote like oh great cinematography great acting i really love this particular scene you know i went to go see it and blah 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 so you know what i mean like i feel like there would be yeah. evidence that people actually enjoyed reading well i'll just straight up say it. i do not enjoy reading as much as i used to and Whoa. i i think that uh again i the internet has damaged my brain, made it harder. Mm-hmm. I think I get older and I get pickier because what, one thing I have noticed is every so often something clicks with me and it doesn't feel like work anymore and I just like pick the book up and it, like I used to and I just can read for, for you know a sustained period of time. Um, but I don't know. I, yeah, it's harder for me. I, 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 tend, I mean, I've always been a rereader and I tend to even more now mm-hmm. just reread the things I already love and I... Yeah, so I'm, I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I, I, but I don't know. I, uh, I don't know what to do with that information because it doesn't make me want to stop trying to write them. But you do go, well, shit. If you don't read a whole lot of novels, but again, you know, this goes back to like we we're talking about at the top of this about like the idea of perennial sellers. I kind of only want to fuck with the shit I want to fuck with these days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, and if that means that, well, I mean, I've doing it for work purposes now that I'm rereading LA Confidential again but like you know I read a lot of uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy and and uh, you know uh, Stephen King and and I read a lot of nonfiction you know that's re- really a lot of you know I, uh, I'm reading a book on the, the military history of the IRA oh that's cool yeah it, it, it's too long um, that's another thing I figured out about myself is um, I, and I think we might have talked about this last time. I'm not sure. I, I'm really trying to stop getting the best book on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't want the best book on Napoleon anymore. I want the most fun to read book about Napoleon because <laughs> I'm going to retain the same amount of information from either of them. That's true. Yeah. That's and so really I, don't, I don't need to read 800 pages on fucking Napoleon. Um, I just give me the gist. It, you know, I need more than a Wikipedia article. Um, but less than 800 pages. And so, you know, I just started The Blood of Emmett Till, which is Ooh, incredibly depressing. I can but imagine. Like, but, like, really, really readable in this way that I go, oh, thank God. Like, thank you for, for, like, thinking about how to structure this so it's an interesting read, not just starting with, like, you know, the Mississippi Delta was founded by, you know. Oh, geez, shoot me in the face. Yeah, totally, right? dude. But, I, no, I, I totally see what you're saying. And that that's kind of an interesting way to think about writers now in general is that like the best writers are kind of the people who will they're like the best funnels basically they're the people who will do that research and read the fucking five or six eight hundred page books on the subject and be like here is an entertaining 150 pages where you'll get the entire gist like those are like that's their like professional funnels boom right there yeah, and, and I think that's that's an incredibly valuable thing, and, and I understand the need for the the historians who write the definitive. Like I bought again, like I, I, I don't practice what I preach. I bought volume one of the new two volume biography of Hitler, mm. and uh, it's way too much information about Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> 
And this book is just jam-packed full of Hitler. It really is. It's Hitler from front to back, and it's, uh, you know, I don't need that much information on Hitler, and I won't retain it, you know? And I'm fascinated with, have you read HHHH? Oh, dude, no, it's on my list, though. I'm not sure if it was you. I think it was you that was talking about that, and I, I put it on my Amazon list, so it's going to get bought soon. I, I really recommend I'm, you know, I am a, a little bit of one of those people who reads too much about Nazis, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm particularly focused on uh, Heydrich, uh, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, who was probably the most evil Nazi, or he was really in the running. Damn. And uh, and then Operation Anthropoid, which is the uh, the assassination attempt um, from Czech nationalists uh, who killed Reinhard Heydrich. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the only like major assassination of a Nazi figure during World War II. Uh, and I am fascinated with it. And HHHH is a great book because it's a historical novel uh, that tells you everything you need to know about it without being dull. Mm. Um, and, and it's also it's also a meta novel in a lot of ways, and I think you'll really like it uh, because of that. Not just because of that, but it's yeah. like it's a very you, interesting you know novel. Me. You know me. Yeah. That's, that's 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 what that's what you know pokes my ears up basically. Like ooh, meta. I did well, it. it, it <laughs> what it really it asks this really deep question of what do you owe the subjects of a historical novel? Oh, I love um, it. No, that's great. And and particularly when you're talking about these guys, and I can never. Uh, Jan Kubik is one of them, but uh, really everybody should know the names of the guys who led Operation Anthropoid because uh, they're amazing human beings. Um, like the thing they did was so heroic, and the way they die is so incredibly heroic. Like you know, uh, they were just they were G's. Um, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. he really he asked this question of like, what do I owe them? Can I possibly make up? How can you write a historical novel and make up dialogue? Is a question he asks. Mm. Um, so can I have them say this? I wasn't there. Maybe it was a nice night. Maybe he's, you know, like, mm. like, so it's really interesting from that level, but it's also just interesting from the level of like, it's, it's a short book about a really interesting thing and you learn all about it and you walk away edified and entertained. And I just, I feel like so many people today don't feel like they have to earn your attention. And it mm. drives me nuts. like mm. fucking like I'm busy, yo. Like, yeah. Tell me, in the first five pages, I need to know why I'm fucking reading this book. And I don't mean like you have to be plain about it, but I need to read something that makes me, again, I hate to, sometimes I feel like I only talk about three things, but like I opened up LA Confidential again last night, and the first chapter is an amazing, crazy motel room shootout. And you don't know anything, and you don't know anybody in it, and it, but it, you just read it and go, well, fuck, I'm fucking in. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> White, White Jazz does that too. You yeah, because you're just right there with Dave. Like, so, and he's uh, he's like going. He's I, I won't use Elroy language, but he essentially has to go to a, a black neighborhood to because he's a, a slumlord, and there's some sort of things going on where everybody has shotguns, and then there's a shootout, and you know, of course, with white jazz, that's that was like the pinnacle of Elroy's telegraphic kind of style, in my yeah. opinion, at least. Um, I think his opinion too. I think he said that he went a little bit too far in Cold Six Thousand and tried to kind of rein it in in Bloods Are Over, which I still like Cold Six Thousand a lot too. But I uh, do too. But it is it is stylistically pure to a point of like insanity. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yeah. I, I like it too. But it's it is hard to read, and then you get locked in. What I found is when you get locked into that style, it makes other forms of writing look 
bad. I know, like, dude. I went through that with the... Because one of my favorite books of all... Like, I think top five of all time is American Tabloid. And yes. after I read American Tabloid, uh, I went to go read other stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck is this garbage? You know? It's just... It's really Well, weird. I... You know, in my own work, I, I do it very little. But, like... Like, geographic descriptions of shit. Uh-huh. Like... I just can't do it. Like I can't spend a page talking about what something looked like. And I think it's probably, I probably have Elroy poisoning at this point in my life. And, uh, I found the Elroy poisoning at the, at its worst when I started realizing I was doing backslashes to, to indicate when three things are happening at the same time. Uh, yeah. I was like, Oh shit. No, I, that's, I, I've gone too far. I have, I have experimented with never really pulled off trying to do almost just script speak mm-hmm. in, in prose and just, like putting no more information than you would put into a shooting script and and, and it doesn't work Mm -hmm. but like you can get close to it but i you know yeah i've done the same thing of like uh losing a lot a lot of uh, a lot of m dashes Mm -hmm. um trying to to eliminate every single word that you can but he does that without using a lot of sentence fragments which is really impressive they tend to still be sentences with verbs and you know objects and verbs you know and uh I don't know. It, it, it's 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 really not, but it's not fun at the end of the day. The Colt Six Thousand, it there's the section of Colt Six Thousand, and I can't remember the character's name, but like the the cop who's introduced in the Colt Six Thousand, the Mormon guy's son, mm-hmm. uh, he goes and kills the men who killed his wife. Yep. And he like puts the guy in the trunk and then and stands there and shoots him with a shotgun until like the car basically explodes. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me, that particular section is the absolute pinnacle of, of that book in, in terms of the writing and, and how visceral it is and how, how, you know, cinematic it is. And, and people, when they talk about like, she rides shotgun, they always say like, Oh, it's very cinematic. And I think they always attribute it to me working in, in screenwriting, which is probably true, but I really think it's more just like, now nah, I'm just trying to rip off Elroy. Yeah. I think we're all kind of, I think there's a lot, I know Jeremy Johnson does the same type that he actually does use the backslashes too. His, his, his influences there are pretty apparent, but Hey, I mean, there are worse people to be influenced by. Right. But, um, sure. So yeah. So I actually kind of wanted to get to LA confidential. So how, how are you approaching this shit, dude? Like it's a big, are you nervous? Like what's, what's going on? Well, obviously I'm nervous. It's a, you know, uh, I, I've been working with this really great executive the whole time over at New Regency, a guy named Kevin Plunkett, who I, who I really like working with. And I had, just had to say to him, just point blank, and, and he completely agrees with me, uh, I was like, I am dedicated to not being the guy who fucks up LA Confidential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a terrifying responsibility because... It would be bad enough if it was just the book, but you're talking about something that is not just a beloved book, but a beloved movie that is, in my opinion, as well as other people, maybe the best book-to-screen adaptation of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at what uh, what they did in taking this unfilmable book and shoving it into a movie structure and knowing just what to leave out and what to put in. Um, so it's, yeah, it's extremely daunting. And then to have to do it for, for TV and to do it in, I have to do it in the five act because it is for network TV, so there are going to be commercial breaks. So I have to do it in the network structure. But Elroy, it's so structured already. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously there are liberties. I can't talk about this in, in a lot of detail, but, like, you know, there are liberties I'm taking, but I'm, I'm really trying to to stay true to the book when I can, and, and it's particularly to the characters. And I think that's what the movie did so well is is – 
take these characters and distill them and then take like nine major scenes from the book and shuffle them in a way that doesn't resemble the book and plot structure at all. Um, and, and to, to, I'm trying to do that and to do it on a network TV show where, you know, you can do a lot on network TV these days. Um, as far as violence goes, I'm not concerned at all. Hmm. Uh, I, you know, uh, we'll see on, on language, you know, uh, oh, what's sure. yeah. and what they want. And, um, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's extremely daunting because it's, it's it, if it's not my favorite book, it's in my top five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, along with American tabloid, um, and, uh, and I know it could be a really great TV show and I am excited about it. I feel like I, I'm a fan of procedurals. Um, and at the end of the day, LA confidential is a, it's a cop book mm-hmm. and, and it, it's, these characters are extremely in depth, but they, they are people who are doing something all the time. They're always trying to solve crimes. Um, and they're also trying to heal themselves and all those other things, but, but I, I'm, my, my touchstone for this as far as TV goes is The Shield, um, which is a show that had an incredible characters that were revealed through like real breakneck action. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really going against the grain of like, you know, it's not going to be a case of the week show. I, I really probably shouldn't talk about this too much, but no, it's that's not fine. Be, no, that's, yeah, if you can't talk about it, that's totally fine. Like, I, I'll yeah. this thought. I just, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, frankly. Okay. Uh, hold on a second. Let me decline this phone call. Okay. Um, um, you know, but it is going to be like, they're going to be solving, uh, they're going to be trying to solve a mystery every week. It's going to be one large mystery per season, but like, and it's all going to be connected to the book, but like, I, I just really, the idea of writing something where these, I, I love, like I said, solving crimes. I love watching cops be cops and, and, and to watch these particular characters get to do all these things is really fun. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of shit in the pilot that, you know, was in the pitch and that nobody's kicked back from yet that I'm like, I can't believe we're going to get this on CBS, but fuck it, let's do it. And <laughs> That's awesome, dude. And did you say yeah. you said you were pitching another show? Like, so you're going to be doing two shows. I'm sure, well, you, I'm sure you can't say anything about that, but, you know. Uh, well, you know, um, yeah, not until it sells, but basically, like, um, I, uh, right now, all that exists for LA Confidential is I've been, I'm being paid to write the pilot. Hmm. And the way these things work is, is that, you know, they buy a lot of pilots, and then out of those, they'll shoot a, a smaller number of pilot episodes, actually shoot. They won't shoot every pilot they buy. Mm-hmm. And of the pilots they shoot, they won't turn them all into TV shows. So, you know, this is the, this is the way it is for everybody. There's no guarantee that a pilot that is sold um, is a TV show that's on the air. So I have oh, to keep, okay. I have to look past this and go, well, you know, um, I got to do what's next. Um, so, I, you know, and for me, the, the alternatives would be to either go get another job uh, or to, to try and sell another show. And I'm in a place in my life right now where my goal is to never have a boss again. Mm. Uh, now, like I was saying earlier, in, in the television system we live in, there you still work for the companies, but that's different than having like a boss who's got an office down the hall from you. Oh, for sure, yeah. And you know, um, so so yeah, so I want to try and sell another show so I can get paid to write that pilot script, and then you know, if I win some kind of lottery where both of these shows became actual shows on the air, and I have to run two shows at once, I don't know how that works, and that you know, I'll. That mm-hmm. sounds like a problem that I can solve when I get to it because um, sure. the odds of that happening are, are pretty small. Um, 
and like I said, you know, I, you just got to keep doing the next thing. And, and since the novels aren't coming out, um, I did find that when it came time for me to sit down and write the outline for L.A. Confidential, which I just turned in, um, it went really fast in a way that nothing about this novel I've been working on has gone. And I don't know what that means exactly. I sometimes fear I'm a little like Hunter S. Thompson, who, I mean, that sounds like faint praise, like it'd be awesome to be like Hunter S. Thompson. But what I mean specifically is, you know, Hunter S. Thompson essentially considered himself a failed novelist. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he always wanted to be a novelist, and journalism was what he did to pay the bills. And, oh. you know, but he never, he wrote the, the Rum Diaries, which he never really got published until he was, you know, Hunter S. Thompson, and let's be frank, I don't know if you've read it, it's not a great book. I liked it, I mean, I, I, but I always kind of, some of my favorite books are just uh, dilettantes kind of wandering around tropical locales, uh, yeah. a lot of hem, like, pretty much Hemingway, um, um, The Sun Also Rises is pretty much that, just in Spain, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know, I, I have a soft spot for those those kind, those and uh, books about uh, male prostitutes wandering around New York City. Uh, those huh. will get those will get me every time. I don't know why I just love them. Like That's this, interesting. The Mysterious Skin. Jonathan Ames wrote one that I can't remember the name of. Oh, um, I read that. that. Like Jonathan Ames' first novel. Live, live, not live by night. Something by night. Um, it is. Is it not live by night? Um, it's something like. I don't that. know. I read that one. Uh, I yeah. No, I know what you mean. But my the point is, is that. Uh, you know, Hunter S. Thompson, he saw a whole different life for himself than one where he was just a journalist. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and everybody would be like, oh, that's crazy because he was so good. And, you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is essentially a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I know yeah. it's vaguely based on real events, but, like, who knows how much. And uh, But, um, I, so I, I might be somebody who writes one or two books and then makes TV. And that's just, I read a quote from Nick Pizzolatto the other day, um, who I would not quote in all circumstances, but he did say something that struck me as true, which is people who like what he like watch TV, they don't read books. Mm, interesting. And that, that is, man. And that, th- these are, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, no. like, I, I, uh, I really do think that that's just a really, really big question for you and for me and for, it's like, do our... Do our interests actually line up with what books are doing right now? Right. Well, yeah, no, it's totally a fair question, and and um, I I don't know how to answer that because I I know that like I don't do there are there is a type of crime thriller that sells right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not what I do, and I don't think I'll ever do it, and I don't think I should try. What kind uh, is that? Well, you know, like the the girl on the train, uh, or right, the, right. Gotcha. you know, yeah. Um, the unsub is selling really well right now. I haven't I haven't read unsub, but like, uh, you know, those kind of things do very well. Serial killer fiction. Um, it's not what we do. What we do is, um, I mean, frankly, it's male centric, mm-hmm. um, and, and men don't read as much as women do, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, so it's it's hard to. Meanwhile, I mean, their crime films also aren't doing particularly well right now. I feel like, um, you know, the age of heat is kind of over. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does seem like TV is the one place that you can go to and tell these kind of stories, 
Uh, so that's kind of, I think, how I wound up here uh, in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, I, I don't know. It, I don't want to be a bunch of people's boss, which is the mm. like, thing I can't say in these meetings because, like, people want, like, to me, like, like I said, I, I am moving towards anarchism in my personal beliefs. And part of that is, like, not wanting, to, like, real power is control over your own life, but not control over other people's life. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's what I want and it seems to me like the novelist is the perfect encapsulation of that whereas if you're in TV if I'm going to be a showrunner I've got to be a boss and i got to have power over people you've got to hire people fire people you have to tell people no you have to tell somebody who worked their ass off on a script that you're rewriting it like that's what the job is and I'm like mm-hmm. I don't that's, not, that's nothing I have any passion for whatsoever I just want to tell stories and uh, but again, like this is where I'm at, and this is what I I'm, seem to be able to do right now. So I'm I'm gonna do it. But it it does kind of I have a lot of conflicts about it. So yeah, and I mean it's probably just a matter of time before you can just write books. I think that I do think that psychically, I think the country is just like we're all a little fucked up right now. Because I've noticed you you've tweeted this three or four times that I've seen about how uh, you, you, something to the effect of it's like damn Trump really doesn't want me to write. Uh, and it's kind of true, you know. I think we're all a little in a weird space right now. Um, and but I think that it'll either steady out or we'll all be vaporized. And either way, it's kind of a win-win if you think about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do think that it'll probably just. It. I don't know. I feel sometimes I feel, not to be like ageist or weird or anything, but sometimes I really do feel like being a novelist is kind of an older person's game. Um, which is why so many novelists don't really break out until they're in their mid forties, you know, because I I think that there's just like, I think when you get to that age, I think that might be when people kind of decide to start reading again. I don't know what happens, but I do know that a lot of readers are really older or actually like we were talking about earlier, really much younger because YA is huge too. Um, but we're just kind of like, we're both kind of like in the middle right now where I don't really think there are that many 30 somethings that prioritize books or reading or and so by extension you know like writing those books is also it's i don't know there's like this weird disconnect between wanting to be a thing and wanting to tell the stories and then not actually being able to find the the patience or strength or inspiration to actually write the things so i don't know yeah i you know i i i agree with all of that. I, 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 the whole thing about the amount of brain space that we all give to Trump is like that's a whole thing. Um, I, mean, I just lost my train of thought. I have a hard time. I don't know if this bothers you at all. And, and I, I really hate to complain about this. And I'm not complaining, but I just gotta. I'll just say this: is I'm having a hard time figuring out as a white man why to tell stories. Mm. And, and I find sometimes that I, I let it paralyze me a little bit in a way that I probably shouldn't mm-hmm. of like I don't know like I saw somebody say the other day that like 90% of all art is that white men are sad and lonely and they want you to know it mm-hmm. and I'm like okay that's probably true and I know that's supposed to be a diss but like what else am I supposed to do <laughs> that's the question man like that's what's so tough about it and I, I think I think about this a ton, you know, I especially think about it. Um, it's funny because actually the last podcast that I did with Sean Kilpatrick, we kind of got into this a little bit so I can kind of elaborate on the thoughts here. Um, 
I, uh, I, I do think especially th- there's two elements to it, right? There's the self, uh, analysis, like self deprecation, which is, I think what you're more talking about, right? And also the self, like the confusion that arises from that, right? It's like, well, I only, I do only have these stories and yes, other stories are probably more important, but why can't I, I want to tell my stories too. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then it's also systemic right now. And there's a kind of a weird thing going on and it's sort of tough. I don't want to like out and out say that uh, publishers are intentionally looking for certain types of books in a kind of like gross predatory tokenist sort of way. But mm-hmm. uh, on the other hand, I, I, it's just kind of what I see, you know? Um, and I, I do think that there's, it's hard to tell where uh, altruism begins and you know uh self-interest ends at times um sure and in books in particular it's just really hard it's like well i've I've known this person for a decade and they've never really given a shit about queer poc voices but they just put out a call for just queer poc books i don't know you know what i mean so like you, you do this weird mental thing in your head that really at the end of the day is is a very white thing to do right i think yeah. we can agree on that oh um, yeah for sure and so but I guess when I get down to it, I, I've had this discussion a lot with a lot of people, and it, it kind of is just, I don't think it's really like straight white male's time right now. And it's really hard to say that without starting to sound like uh, like, like a Ben Shapiro or something. Sure, sure, sure. You know what I mean? But I 100%, if anybody who's listening could could you know see, I, I look very sincere right, right now. I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't think that that's a bad thing, but as, you know, a white straight dude writer, it's just a little sad, you know, because it's kind of like, well, for a while at least, nobody's really going to care, but, you know, so just personally, it's just a little sad, but I... Yeah, I I agree with you in that, like, like, we've had our chance. (laughs) You know, like, that, like, there's, on, on a macro level, this is exactly what should happen. Now, I, I don't believe in capitalism's ability to fix anything, uh, much less the gaping wounds of, of racism. Uh, but as much as it can, this is a thing that should happen, and I think it's fucking great. Uh, as somebody who writes, I still have to live in the world and write, and I the best I can come up with is I'm going to keep doing what I do, and if somebody says, hey, I'm not reading anything by straight white men this year all i can say is cool um yeah okay totally totally get it there's shit fucking tons of books by straight white men out there people have had to read them their entire lives if they're not into that right now cool you know um but uh, here uh, to to kind of go to more of an artistic like quandaries that you get into are things like i'm very aware of the fact of how many stories are the stories of a woman being murdered in order to elicit an emotional response from a man. Mm-hmm. And that's what the story's actually about, is that man's emotional response. Mm-hmm. And I get that that's a fucked up trope. And I get that it's, that it's, it's fucked up. But I, as, a, as an artist, still find it incredibly compelling, and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Because... I just deep down feel like if you start a book with the murder of a man or you start a book with the murder of a woman, the second one is more compelling. And I I can't shake that loose. And I feel like that's where David Lynch is somebody who would never think to question that. Right. 
and that he totally knows that the death of Laura Palmer, the prom queen, means more than James. if the quarterback. Yeah, if James had wound up strangled and wrapped in plastic, you w- Twin Peaks wouldn't be Twin Peaks. And so it's, it's wrestling with that is, is, is kind of what I, I'm more that's really tripping me up is like those kind of questions of like, is it okay for me to write a book about a guy who's trying to solve the murder of a woman? Um, because I know how cliche it is and, and, and you go, well, why not make it a man? And you go, Cause it doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Did you mm-hmm. read tapping the source? By Kem Nunn, right? The surf, the surf book. Yeah. I read, yeah, I read that in high school, I think. Yeah. I read that a while ago. I just reread it because it is um, something similar to what I'm trying to work on for the novel right now. And, uh, and it's his, his sister disappears and he goes and tries to find his sister. And again, you just ask yourself, would this be the same book if he was looking for his brother? And the answer is no. The reasons for that on a subconscious level are undoubtedly sexist. Um, something about women needing protection. Um, you know, the death of a woman being more of a tragedy because she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. as opposed to if she wasn't beautiful um, and I, again I, there's part of me that says you can't do that it's wrong and there's part of me that says you just kind of have to write what's in your head mm-hmm. yeah um, and I think, I think that um, in particular you know I watched this movie Message from the King uh, which had some cool scenes uh, but it's yeah. basically it's a guy come, he comes from South Africa to find his uh, sister and of course she's been uh, she's been prostituting and has been murdered and all this kind of stuff right um and so he goes on a revenge spree. I don't think I'm. I don't think that's a spoiler, because um, you know, you really can't spoil these things. But um, yeah, as somebody who I, I read a lot now about, uh, you know, about sex workers and sex workers' rights in particular, and I'm at a point now where somebody becoming a prostitute doesn't really shake me the way that it used to. You mm-hmm. know, it's that whole eight millimeter thing. Right? Where it's like, oh, they got into porn, which is a big thing in, in noir, especially. You know, the woman who moves to LA with dreams of being an yeah. actress and becomes a porn star and then gets into heroin. And then it's, but it's all incredibly uh, uh, sex negative, especially like sex work negative, right? Right. Um, but then, you know, now we're armed with all these buzzwords and things like that. And the fact of the matter is that art doesn't really play by those rules at all. You know what I mean? It's like, why is it that I'm a straight dude, but I love reading fiction about, you know, gay dude prostitutes, right? Why did I, like, really enjoy reading Frisk by Dennis Cooper, which has, like, some of the most awful torture and mutilation scenes that I've ever mm-hmm. read in a book? You know what I mean? Like, you can't... Yeah. We, we're so... People, you know, you go online and we're so told that, you know, if we don't conform to these new sort of nation states in a way nation states of thought i guess if you will um that we are in the out group and unfortunately art just never works that way because it's what we actually think in our head and sometimes that's fucked up you know and that's and sometimes i think that that's the outlet right that's the cage that it goes into you know we we read about it and we're and we're given our you know masculine fantasies of you know saving the the princess from the the bad men right of course in real life we would we think that women are the same as men essentially as far as yeah. you know like how much power they should be given and et cetera et cetera et cetera um of course unless we're anarchists and then you know we don't want to give anybody power 
which I don't entirely understand. Can you explain that to me? Um, well, it's it's just about the idea that, um, you know, given it, practically I'm a socialist because I think socialism is a better answer for what we have than, um, than what we have right now. But just basically the idea that, like, to me, hierarchies always lead to abuse. Mm -hmm. And when you give people power, you give people, people just essentially, I think, in a pure best world state should be able to make decisions for themselves, any children under their care, uh, and that's it. And, mm -hmm. and anything else should be voluntary. And, um, you know, there should only be voluntary association and there should only, people should be able to walk at any time. But that's, you know, power can be expressed through economics, can be expressed through governance, it can be expressed a lot of different ways. It can, you know, you just, you can't find a power structure that doesn't have corruption in it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so at the end of the day, you know, I just, I can't sign off on any of them. And that's where socialism falls down for me is the idea that like, like a, like a you know, a, what do they call it? A, a dictatorship of the proletariat would still be awful because it's a dictatorship. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, so I just I, I just feel like the less there are hierarchies of any kind in the world, the better off everybody is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's just that's like a, just a base feeling that I have about the world. And and so that's that I'm just trying to figure out how to make that make sense in life. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, and I think that the kind of things that people would go to, like police stuff, you know, like, like well, then who would be cops? I've been thinking about this for a little bit, and this might be a little bit off track, but I was thinking about it, and I actually don't think everything would descend into complete, well, anarchy, uh, to use the kind of different meaning of the word, uh, if cops didn't exist. Uh, I only caught mere, mere wisps of that, but you're basically saying that people kind of self-regulate when they, when they need to. Yeah, yeah, basically. Well, I mean, you know, obviously... You know, it's an incredibly complicated question, but have you ever seen what happens in most places when streetlights go out? No. Well, you know, if a streetlight goes out, there are always maybe people who won't follow this, but essentially people figure out, oh, we'll just turn this into a four-way stop. Mm -hmm. And they don't need to be told that, and they don't, you know, again, there might be one fucking asshole who, who, who goes in line when he shouldn't, but, like, for the most part if a streetlight goes out, people learn to self-regulate and they figure out how to get through, um, you know, but anarchy also implies that there's not a lot of, uh, you know, ownership of property and things like that um, mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Um, and so the idea of theft goes away. Um, obviously, you still have crimes like rape, but like, you know, rape is obviously a violation of community norms. And, and again, like, that's where it gets tricky is what do you do with those people? Prison, I don't think, is an answer, but I don't know what is necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, hey, I don't have this shit worked out. But, yeah. like, again, it's just more this gut feeling of, like, you know, and, and that's why, like, just getting rid of government isn't the answer is that then you have um, family hierarchies that are patriarchies. And when patriarchies run sway, you have all sorts of horrible sexual abuse. And, mm -hmm. you know, you get those with, I mean, you can't find a religion that doesn't any kind of like formalized religion that doesn't have sexual abuse tied to it. And uh, again, like I think sexual abuse is, is a symptom of why I don't think hierarchies are good because 
you get it here in Hollywood. You know, there's all sorts sure. of uh, uh, of sexual abuse that is is done through the hierarchy of Hollywood, and people are protected. I'm fascinated with like I just rewatched Spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fascinated with hierarchies protecting really bad actors. I mean, you're talking about your Joe Paternos or these these priests where you have to assume some of the people moving them around were people who did not want to fuck children, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they still are such a part of this hierarchy that they will do everything they can to protect a child fucker. Uh, you know what I have not read a really good article on is Jared Fogle. Yeah, well, I think that Subway saw to that. Right? Yeah. But I... that's exactly what I mean. You have to assume most people at Subway are not child fuckers. Sure. Yet, yet <laughs> they. Wh- wh- I want to know how much cover up happened. How how many people knew that Jared Fogle fucked kids? Because mm-hmm. um, I'm betting it was a lot. Yeah, you know? and, and you have to wonder how far they think that they can take that before the wheels fall off. You know, it's like d- didn't. I mean, going back to his dorm days, he, wasn't he like? known as like the porn guy like he just had a huge stash of porn that he would lend out to people yes he apparently had a lending library of porn (laughs) Um, take a porn leave a porn (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to take a porn somebody else left yeah Um, that's true (laughs) um but and again you know like you were saying earlier about you know you don't want to be sex negative but i i still think you can say kind of safely that there's a line on porn that like in the consumption of porn that is not healthy. Sure. Uh, and again, talk about the internet that probably Pornhub is not good for us. No. Did you listen to the butterfly effect, the John Ronson thing on audible? No. Oh, it's great. I love John Ronson to begin with. I think that he's fantastic, but the butterfly effect is about the invention of Pornhub and the unforeseen consequences of it. It's fantastic, dude. It's like okay. six parts. It's chopped up into little 20-minute episodes. Mm-hmm. But um, it's really interesting because some of the episodes are about how um, uh, bespoke porn has become really huge now. You know, uh, just Is that where like you, you ask somebody to, will you please do X and Y while wearing Z? Yeah, precisely. Um, but then, you know, you see all these uh, directors from the 80s who are still doing it, and they thought they were going to be able to retire and that's all gone. And you talk to the, one of the main uh, people who's studied is the guy uh, from uh, Montreal, I think it was, who actually invented Pornhub, you know, who yeah. lives in this kind of crazy bat cave, right? With like, he literally lives in a cave with like a gigantic aquarium and floors that rise out, you know, like the like, uh, things that rise up out of the floor and stuff like that. He's, he's become like a Bruce Wayne type billionaire off of inventing Pornhub and pretty much everybody else has to, you know, eat shit. But, um, yeah, no, Pornhub is definitely not, not a good, well, none of that shit is though, dude, you know, Pornhub, Spotify, Netflix, at the end of the day, it kind of, it's, it, it seemed like a really good idea at the time, I guess, but yeah, it's really not. And then, you know, of course, Kindle Unlimited, blah, blah, blah. It's basically one thing that I've noted and I'm going to try not to go on too long of a rant because this is just something that's been pissing me off lately, um, is that people don't want to pay for the stuff that I do, whether it's Broken River or this podcast or my own books, you know? It's like people just don't want to pay. And I know they want to read because whenever I give things away for free, 
they get it. Well, I guess I don't know if they actually read them, but that's neither here nor there. So people don't want to pay for shit. I actually, not to interrupt you, but I actually don't think that's neither here nor there. Oh. I think it's really important that I think the, the cheaper something is, the less likely you are to read it. Yeah. Absolutely. That. I, I, get, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. So I, I, guess, I guess the problem is, is that, yeah, I mean, exactly what you're saying, you know, with Netflix and Kindle Unlimited and Spotify and blah, blah, blah. I just really, I, people don't like value like a, a piece of art at all anymore. Yeah. Unless, of course, it's one of the things that has risen up is um, these different sort of like pseudo religions, these properties that you're talking about, which you describe as, as land. But I think it's also, they're also uh, uh, new religions. So people will buy... Um, they love crossovers, right? So they'll buy a, a t-shirt with a picture of like a Wookiee and Zelda, you know? Like it's like, huh. oh, two things that I like together. Yay, do that again. Do a different, it's a Pokemon with, you know, Solid Snake or something like, you know what I mean? Sure, um, or it's just like, I love like the, the, uh, the crossover where it's just like, what if we drew Star Wars characters, but they look like Disney characters? Yeah, um, exactly. And it's, yes, and it's just sticking two things together with nothing implied, I mean, I guess other than in that Eisenstein theory kind of way, by jamming two things together, you imply a connection and therefore meaning is created, but basically no meaning created. Exactly. Just like, uh, well, no, you're right. If you drew, what if you drew Chewbacca, but he's wearing Link's hat, and now it's Legend of Zelda, but it's Legend of Kashyyyk or whatever. Yeah. Uh, way for me to pull out Chewbacca's home planet. Yeah, dude. You, yeah, there. you nailed it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like that. I don't believe that there's mean. I'm sure like some semiotics professor could tease out a meaning for that, but like essentially no. Yeah. And um, and yet, yes, go put that on a T-shirt, put it on Redbubble, and watch the money come in. Yeah, it's because okay. it's it's because it becomes a sort of like. Well, that's why like I've suddenly realized. Um, you know, I've struggled and struggled and struggled to make money doing all this, and uh, the thing that I've realized is that it's all this podcast. The books, everything is really just a business card for people who hire me to edit their work because that, yeah. that's been kind of flowing in. So that's my main source of income now. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of just what we were, we were talking about where the, the value of the things has gone way down, but everybody wants to do it. So I'll be here fixing books, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you know, that's why so many people like end up being writing teachers mm -hmm. because it's easier to sell that to people than it is to sell your books. Yep. yep. And I think about that sometimes because, fuck, you know, um, at some point, I'll, you know, I'm now a novelist and a TV writer and I've written screenplays and, you know, they haven't been made yet. But if one of those gets made, I'm a triple threat and I could go to any teaching program in the world and say, look what I can teach. Um, mm -hmm. But it's weird that that's more valuable, that it's, it's more valuable to try and sell people the dream that's just going to turn them into writing teachers. Mm -hmm. than, um, than it is to write the books sometimes. It's, it's massively depressing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at some point, it's also a question of like, to get back to the politics of it, of like, if you didn't, get, if you didn't need the money at all, if money was literally not an object, mm -hmm. then would, what would you want with your books? Like, what would you want for them? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a... Uh... That's definitely a question that I like. I, I actually was thinking about this last night because I finally had a breakthrough. And I think, uh, I think I've think i just come out the complete other side of it, which is, 
you know, what we were talking about earlier with the Twin Peaks and, you know, with the fact that there's really not going to be a ton of money in it, blah, 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 blah. I suddenly realized like, oh, I can just do this thing that I actually wanted to do in the first place. And it all just started popping out, you know? So for me, that just means I just kind of like writing a bunch of little tiny paragraphs uh-huh. uh, that sort of like encapsulate what's happening. And then I, I like to write a lot of dialogue. So, you know, and I just, every time I write it, it just, it doesn't feel like a real book, but I just uh-huh. became kind of comfortable with like, yeah, it's going to be a little bit different, you know? And yeah. I, and I'm, I'm splitting up the four different parts of the book into little novellas, and then I'm going to mix them all up. I'm going to jumble them up uh, just because I like to make puzzles. Uh, so I like to be obtuse for the for the sake of just like making it kind of difficult to figure out because I like doing that. And do people like reading that? I don't know, but who cares, you know? <laughs> well, right, but the, the point is that somebody out there likes reading it. Yeah. And the best thing you can probably do if, if money is not an object is to deliver the thing you best deliver to the people who want that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, from that point of view... You're clearly a success. Uh, I'm clearly a success. Um, you know, and could could more people read either of us? Sure. But, like, I'm sure you have gotten one or two messages where somebody says that this book, your book, was their favorite book of the year, their favorite book of all time. And if you've done that for anybody, well, hey, like, that's kind of, that's pretty great. Yeah, that's I, true. I, and, you know, I think, again, like, to go all the way back, which is probably a good idea at this point, mm-hmm. um, to that perennial seller's idea of the real victory for me now is the idea that people in 10 years who are like me are going to be finding she right shotgun or whatever comes next and liking it. And that it's not just something that's out this year. Mm-hmm. And that to me, like if you talk about if money isn't an object, what's the goal? The goal is to have people keep reading you for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and not just to read you and throw you away, but to, to be treasured. And I, I don't think that's like, I mean, it's a little egotistical, but like again, your goals ought to be a little egotistical. Oh, like. totally. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's one of those things where I do feel like um, I went through a, I went through a definite phase where I was really, really conscious of seeming uh, too big for my britches, you know. So I, I tried mm-hmm. to kind of play, but now it's just kind of like I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think what I do is cool, and. I and so I don't really. It's just like you know the high school thing, like not caring what other people think about what you say or what what your uh-huh. goals are, even you know, like yeah. But um, but hey, man, wow, two hours. Yeah, I, uh, that's that's a, that, that's a long that's a lot of your time. So I really really oh, no appreciate worries. it, dude. Um, I have to come back next year and we'll we'll see where we're at then. We'll, yeah, I think if we if we put this podcast up against the one we did a year ago, I, it would be kind of funny to see how we've changed and how those ideas have grown. So it might just be a fun, uh, you know, yearly thing to just check. Yeah, back in. for sure. Man. I, I'm sure that if you did that, you would find me absolutely 100% contradicting myself. But I also feel like if somebody listens to this podcast, there will be at least one example of me absolutely 100% can contradicting myself. So yeah, for sure. Same. And I'm, I, I'm on, I'm on every single episode. So I'm sure people can be like, Hey, last episode, you said something completely different and you know, Hey, it's whatever. I'm, it's, yeah. it's all fluid, bro. But yeah, anyway, so thank you very much, and uh, we'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon, man. All right, cool, man. Take it easy. All right, bye-bye.